Perhaps you know the story of the lost Leonardo and the documentary that goes by the same name. Back in 2005, a small little auction house in New Orleans sold a painting for a little over $1,000. But the new owners believed that this painting was a long-lost painting of Jesus by Leonardo da Vinci called the Salvatore Mundi, the savior of the world. Aside from the fact that no one could verify where this painting had actually come from, the painting had been subjected to serious overpainting. Someone had painted over the original. So first off, who does something like that? Who thinks that they can improve on a Leonardo da Vinci? So note to self, the next time you find yourself in possession of a great masterwork from the Renaissance, resist the urge to think that you can make it better. Well, the, the painting was subsequently sent to an art conservationist here in New York City who removed the overpaint in order to reveal the original painting, and she touched it up a bit in order to restore it to its supposed original condition. But some suggested that she overdid it and that she turned the painting by a lesser artist into a Leonardo da Vinci. And some critics even quipped that we should now refer to this painting as a contemporary painting because 90% of it had been painted during the restoration process. Well, regardless of all that, the painting sold for $450 million in 2017. It remains the most expensive painting ever sold at auction. But to this day, $450 million later, no one is quite sure whether or not it is an authentic Leonardo da Vinci painting or not. Now, I share that story because many people think that that is precisely what has happened to the actual person of Jesus. Jesus has been subjected to centuries of overpainting. And therefore, it's not really possible for us to access the real Jesus. We can't really tell the difference between what is the authentic Jesus and a mere fake. Because interpretation on top of interpretation has been painted over Jesus down through the centuries. And therefore, some would say that the real Jesus has been lost forever. But to the contrary, I agree with those scholars who say that the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, provide us with the earliest and the most reliable sources we have about Jesus. And a surprising thing happens when you remove the, the overpaint of modern skepticism. You see, there are quite a few things that we can know about Jesus that are absolutely beyond dispute. And though it may surprise you, one of them is that Jesus gained massive popularity for his astounding ability to heal people of all different kinds of diseases and afflictions. Now the question is, can we believe it? And if so, what difference does it really make? Well, let's find out. Today as we turn to Matthew 4, I'd like us to consider three things. The reality of Jesus' miracles the meaning of Jesus' miracles, and the purpose of Jesus' miracles. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 4. You'll find our, our passage printed in the order of worship. It can also be found on page 809 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, Matthew 4 provides us with a summary account of Jesus' ministry, and Matthew emphasizes that Jesus not only went about talking about the kingdom of God, but actually doing something about it. And that's consistent with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so Jesus goes around not only proclaiming the kingdom of God, but demonstrating it through the power of God. He sought to bring God's loving reign to bear on ordinary, everyday lives. And apparently Jesus was so effective at healing people of all different kinds of diseases and afflictions that thousands of people followed him from literally 100 miles around, hundreds of miles around, for just a chance. For just a chance of being able to tap into the undreamed of benefits that Jesus had to offer. So in addition to what you might call Jesus' nature miracles, such as calming the storm or feeding the 5,000, the Gospels record 17 separate accounts of healings, which includes three resuscitations, raising people from the dead, and eight exorcisms, casting out demons. Now, we might find all of this a little bit beyond our experience and a little hard to believe, but the fact is that there is more accumulated historical evidence for Jesus' miracles than for either his birth or his death. Let me give you just one example. Josephus was a Jewish historian who was born just after the crucifixion of Jesus, and he later participated in the Jewish revolt against Rome, but later in life he became a friend of the emperor Vespasian, and he moves to Rome, from which he writes two great works of history, one of which is called Jewish Antiquities. And in that book, Jewish Antiquities, Josephus directly refers to Jesus. Now, some people think that the original text might have been tampered with over the years as it was copied from one generation to the next. But a very respected scholar named Geza Vermesh removed all the possible accretions and restored the original text. And if anything, he overdid it. And the restoration that he offers is overly conservative. But according to Geza Vermesh, this is what Josephus originally wrote about Jesus, writing towards the end of the first century. At about this time lived Jesus, a wise man. He performed astonishing feats and was a teacher of such people as are eager for novelties. He attracted many Jews and many of the Greeks. Upon an indictment brought by leading members of our society, Pilate sentenced him to the cross. But those who had loved him from the very first did not cease to be attached to him. The brotherhood of the Christians named after him is still in existence. Now notice a couple things about this reference to Jesus. First of all, Josephus is no friend of Christianity. He takes a dim view of Christians. He says that they are the kind of people that are eager for novelties. That's not a compliment. 
Second of all, he tells us that those who loved Jesus from the first were still attached to him at the time of writing towards the end of the first century. And then he not only confirms that Jesus was sentenced to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate, but that people revered him, number one, as a wise man, and number two, as a wonder worker, as someone who accomplished astonishing feats. You see, Jesus gave every impression of being extraordinarily successful at healing people. So how do we account for that? Well, first of all, I would say that we cannot dismiss these healings simply because ancient people were more gullible and naive and they were simply taken in. They were duped by Jesus. There's another scholar named Graham Stanton who taught for many years at King's College in London and then at Cambridge. And he writes, miracles were not accepted without question in antiquity. Greco-Roman writers were often reluctant to ascribe miraculous events to the gods and offered alternative explanations. Some writers were openly skeptical about miracles, such as Epicurus, Lucretius, Lucian. So it's a mistake to write off the miracles of Jesus as the result of naivete or gullibility of people in the ancient world. Look, people from one generation to the next are people. We're all the same. People in the ancient world were just as skeptical of talk about miracles as we are. But then second, the accounts of the healings in the Gospels could not merely be fictionalized in order to fit with Old Testament prophecies, as some sometimes suggest. And the reason for that is that nowhere in the Old Testament do the prophets speak of God healing lepers. And yet Jesus cleansed lepers, healed lepers as a regular feature of his ministry. For example, Isaiah 35 tells us that when God brings his loving rule to bear on the world, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will dance, the mute will sing, but there's no mention of leprosy. And so the only reason why the Gospels include lepers is because they were prominent among those whom Jesus healed. But then a third reason why the miracles were not simply fabricated is because Jesus' miracles required faith. And again, that was never something that was suggested in the Old Testament scriptures. Faith was never required for God to bring healing into a person's life, but faith was required for Jesus to heal those who were in need of healing or wholeness, or faith was required on the part of those who brought a person to Jesus. And it's striking that the Gospels admit that Jesus was not able to heal in his own hometown of Nazareth. Why? Because he found so little faith there. Now that would be a rather embarrassing detail to include. The only reason why you would include it is if it actually happened. But whether we accept the reality of Jesus' miracles will depend quite a bit on our pre-existing philosophical presuppositions. If you simply think that miracles are impossible, no matter what, well then nothing is ever going to change your mind. But if you're at least open to the possibility that the creator God could act in the world in which we live, well then maybe we're open to surprises. But the fact is that it is hard to ignore the historical evidence. If nothing else, Jesus was famous for healing people of all kinds of diseases and afflictions. But perhaps the most important question is not whether they happened, but what did they mean? What did they mean? What did these miracles mean? Why did Jesus go about healing people? 
Well, the pastor, John Stott, points out a little verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, where the apostle Peter is addressing a crowd in Jerusalem, and he refers to the miracles of Jesus as common ground. He, he knows that everyone there had seen these miracles for themselves. No one's going to contradict him about it. So he appeals to the miracles and he says that this was God's means of attesting to Jesus, backing up the claims that Jesus made about himself because it was God's power that was at work in and through Jesus. And in this little verse, Peter uses three different words to describe the mighty works of Jesus. Powers, signs, and wonders. Powers indicates the origin of Jesus' works. Signs indicates their character. And wonders indicates their effect, their effect on other people. So in uh, Acts 2, verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So what do these three words mean? show us? Well, first of all, he uses the word powers. Sometimes it's translated mighty works, but it's the Greek word dunamis, which is the root for our English word dynamite or dynamic. So God attested to Jesus through the powers that Jesus displayed. Now, Jesus never engaged in magic. Jesus wasn't performing magic. Whenever he healed somebody, he, he never said magic words. There were never long incantations. He wasn't casting a spell or lifting a spell. No, he simply healed people by his own authority. And the point is that wherever Jesus went, God's power was present, the power to heal, the power to, the, to restore. Do you know that there's a place in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is in the midst of a huge crowd and people are pressing in against him from every side. And there's a woman there who thinks to herself, if I just touch the fringe of his clothes, I'll be healed. And so she does, and she's instantly healed. But do you know what Jesus does? He's in a massive crowd, surrounded by hundreds, thousands of people. And as soon as she touches his clothing, he turns to his disciples and says, who touched me? And the disciples are a little confused, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's lots of people touching you. But he goes on to explain that he perceived power had gone out of him. Dunamis, dynamite, the power of God had come out of him. Now, the word power might be better to describe the mighty works of Jesus than miracle. Because the word miracle assumes an event that defies the laws of nature. So we think of a, of, of a miracle as a violation of nature or a contradiction of nature. But it would be better to think of the mighty works of Jesus as the fulfillment of nature rather than the violation of nature. See, what happens when Jesus, when the power of God is present, is exactly what we would expect if the power of the creator God is now present in his creation. God doesn't violate nature. No, he brings it to its truest self, its fullest purpose. You see, what happens when a scientist discovers evidence that doesn't necessarily fit the theory of how things are supposed to be? What does that scientist do? She changes her theory. What did Copernicus do when he realized that the orbits of the planets, Mars and Venus, didn't really match up? It didn't, it didn't add up. It didn't fit with the theory that the Earth was the center of the universe. I don't know how this works. 
Mars and Venus, they, they didn't come around fast enough if, if Earth was at the center of the universe. So what did Copernicus do? He changed his theory, right? And in a similar way, if the power that Jesus demonstrates doesn't fit with our theories of how the world works, well, then maybe we need to change our theory because the healing that Jesus brings is precisely what we would expect to happen if the power of the creator God suddenly shows up within the world he made. But then secondly, Peter refers to Jesus' mighty works not as powers but as signs, which indicates their character. Signs of what? Well, three things. First of all, they're signs of Jesus' identity. They reveal who Jesus is. And that's what Peter says at the point, that, that God used these mighty works to attest to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. If you go back and read the Old Testament scriptures, why did God sometimes perform mighty works through the prophets and the apostles in the New Testament? Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, Peter and John in the New. Why did God perform those mighty works? To authenticate the prophets and the apostles as messengers who were divinely authorized to speak and to act on God's behalf. So if you ask the question, well, why doesn't God perform mighty works between you, among you and, and me? Why, why doesn't God perform mighty works through us? Do you know what the answer is? Because you're not a prophet and I'm not an apostle. I mean, imagine if I went around raising people from the dead. You would pay a lot more attention to what I have to say, wouldn't you? Than what God has to say. But we're supposed to listen to what God has to say, not what I have to say. Because he has spoken through the prophets and the apostles, the ones who he authorized to speak and act on his behalf, and the way in which he authenticated his messengers was through the mighty works that he performed through them. And so it is with Jesus. God attests to Jesus' divine nature. And it's important to realize that if the mighty works were a sign of Jesus' identity, then it shows us what God is like. It shows us something about the character of God. Notice that, that Jesus never engages in mighty works, miracles that are selfish in nature. He never performs stunts. He's not trying to just demonstrate arbitrarily his power or to pull off some party tricks. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Many of us would probably like to know, hey, Jesus, if you know all things, who's going to win? Chiefs or Eagles, should I put my money down on Patrick Mahomes or Jalen Hurts? But Jesus never engages in party tricks. And see, that shows us another reason why his miracles were signs. They were signs not only of his identity, but signs of the kingdom. There is a really big difference between the way in which Jesus is presented in the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the way in which Jesus is presented in the apocryphal gospels that reflect a Gnostic worldview from the second century rather than a biblical worldview from the first century. One of those apocryphal gospels is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And this gospel, written in the second century, imagines Jesus as a little child. And at one point in time, uh, another boy bumps into this child Jesus. And Jesus turns to the boy and says, you will not complete your journey. And then the boy drops down dead. Yeah. Now, is that anything like the Jesus we discover in the canonical Gospels? 
See, the, the, the miracles of Jesus reflect the character of God. Or try this one. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, child Jesus is playing in the dirt. And he molds some, some birds out of clay. And then he claps his hands. And these sparrows turn to life and fly away. Now, what is the point of that? Nothing. There's no point. But you see, in the canonical gospels, there's always a point to the things that Jesus does. They're never pointless. They're never meaningless. They're signs of the kingdom. See, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that place where John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus, begins to have doubts. Maybe I got this wrong, Jesus, because you're not fulfilling my expectations of what the Messiah should be like. And so he sends his messengers back to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And Jesus sends those messengers back to John saying, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. And what does he tell him? The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good and the poor have good news preached to them. You see, what Jesus is doing is precisely what the prophet said God would do when he brought his loving reign to bear on the broken and fallen world in which we live. But then finally, these are signs not only of Jesus' identity or Jesus' kingdom, but they're signs of the future. See, they're meant to give us a picture, a glimpse of what the world will be like when Jesus finally brings God's rule to bear on the world in which we live. It points us forward to the future so that we can anticipate what it will be like because in God's promised future, blindness, paralysis, deafness will be eradicated, will be complete, will be whole. None of these things that, that diminish human life will be present anymore. So you see, they point beyond themselves to the future that God has in store for us. But then finally... The third word that Peter uses is not just powers, not just signs, but wonders. And that indicates the effect that Jesus' works had on other people. When people saw what Jesus was capable of doing, they stood back and they stared in wonder. But if we stop there, then we're going to miss the point. Because Jesus does not want us to stop and stare in wonder. No, he wants us to fall down on our knees in worship. You see, they are wonders, but they're not merely intended to dazzle us. Have you noticed that there's a couple places where in the Gospels, Jesus refuses to perform a miracle when people demand a sign? Or he performs to, he refuses to perform a miracle if he's being asked for all the wrong reasons. And then there's other places where Jesus does perform a miracle, but then he immediately tells the person that he's healed, don't tell anybody about this. Have you been perplexed by that? Why does Jesus do that? Sometimes he refuses, and when he does, he tells people, don't tell anyone. And the reason why is because he has not come merely to be a popular wonder worker. Jesus didn't come to try to impress people with his power so that they might make him an earthly king. Now, there is a deeper meaning to his miracles. So why did Jesus come? What was the ultimate purpose and that brings me to my third and final point. What was the ultimate purpose of Jesus' miracles? Well, there's a, a rather fascinating place in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus comments on the purpose of his mighty works. And he contrasts two sets of cities, 
On the one hand, he refers to Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And then on the other hand, he refers to the cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Now, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were three little towns located on the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee. These are conservative little towns, synagogue in every town, and those three little towns were the home base for Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's where he sets up shop. Capernaum might have been the location of Jesus' own adult home. But then the, the cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, do you know what they were? They were some of the largest, most prosperous pagan cities in Palestine. These were cities filled with people who hated God, who were opposed to God, hostile to God, living their lives in rebellion against God. Those were the original sin cities. So Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, those are the New Yorks. Those are the New Yorks of the ancient world. Now, as far as we know, Jesus never visited Tyre, or Sidon, or Sodom, although he made Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, his home base. But he says something really interesting and surprising in Matthew 11. He says that on the day of judgment, it's going to be better for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They're going to come out on top. They're going to be in better shape. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, why is that? Now, I, I have to admit that I tended to, to skip over this passage in the past because I, I, I didn't fully understand what Jesus was trying to say. But if you go back and you look, okay, so read in the Gospels. What happened in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum? What happened there? Well, those are the places where Jesus drew massive crowds. Those are the places where people thronged around Jesus just to get a glimpse of him, just to get a, a chance of tapping into those unheard of, undreamed of benefits Bethsaida was the place where Jesus healed a man who was blind and restored his sight. Capernaum is the place where they, they ripped open a hole in the roof and lowered the paralytic down in front of Jesus because they, they didn't have enough room to come through the door. And Jesus healed the paralyzed man, told him to get up and walk and go home. You see, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were the places where people had a front row seat on Jesus' miracles. They saw it all for themselves. And they had more reason to believe in Jesus than anyone. You know, people often say to me, well, I would believe in God. I mean, I'm open to the possibility of God. If you would just give me a sign, you know, if he would just prove himself to me, show himself to me, well, then I would believe. But Jesus says, if you lived in Jesus' day, you would have wanted to live in a place like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, but nope. Nope. That's not right. You would have been better off living in Tyre, Sidon, or Sodom. You would have been better living off in a place like New York. Now, why does he say that? What was wrong? What was wrong with the people there? What was the problem? Well, the problem is, in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, people really liked Jesus. They admired him. They were impressed by him. They were fascinated by him. They wanted to be around him. But you know what the problem was? They only admired him. And they didn't let Jesus change them. They didn't let Jesus change them. 
So here's what Jesus says. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. See, what Jesus is saying is, it's better to come from a place like Tyre, Sidon, or Sodom. It's better to come from a place like New York, where people are shocked by Jesus, offended by Jesus, where people are resistant to Jesus, hostile to Jesus, skeptical of Jesus, because in a place like that, you're not going to merely admire Jesus. You're either going to hate him, or you're going to let him change you. You're not going to maintain this sentimental view of Jesus. You're not going to be merely attracted to him. You're not going to merely admire him. You're either going to be completely repulsed and turned off or you'll drop down to your knees and worship. See, that's what Jesus is calling for. And if you're not at least initially shocked and offended by Jesus, well, then you'll never see him for who he really is. The more sentimental of a view of Jesus you have, the less likely you are to let him change you. See, what was... The purpose of Jesus' mighty works, he says, to lead us to repentance. Now, the problem is that when we hear the word repent, we think that Jesus is saying that he wants us to to change our ways, you know, to, to make a few behavioral modifications to our life, to turn over a new leaf. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. When he says to repent, that means to to rip up the floorboards of your life and to base your life on an entirely new foundation, which is Jesus. Jesus is not saying, I want you to repent. That means I want you to add a a new spoke to your wheel. And you're going to add your relationship to me, to your life, like a new extracurricular activity or or a new dimension. No, Jesus is not saying, I want you to add a new spoke to your wheel. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to, to place me at the very center. I want you to replace the hub. You've got to make me the hub of the wheel around which everything else turns. That's what it means to repent. And so you see, what is Jesus trying to do when he warns the people in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? And when he warns us by extension, he's trying to knock us off the fence. Do you see that? He's saying it would be worse to hate Jesus than to straddle the fence and to merely admire him, to be impressed by him or wowed by him. You see, if you, if you merely respect Jesus as a teacher, and you say, well, I, I want to learn from his example. I want to adopt some of his ways. I, I, I want to see if, if, if I can follow some of that teaching. That's not repentance. That's just adding another spoke to the wheel. That's not changing the hub. Or if you say, well, I'm really attracted to Jesus' power because I've had a lot of problems in my life. And I want to tap into Jesus' power so that my life will go better. I, I need to be healed or someone close to me wants to be, needs to be healed. So, so I want to tap into his power. That's not repentance. Do you see the point here? The purpose of the miracles was not to wow you, not to astonish you, not to amaze you, but to change you. If you're only impressed, well, then it would have been better if you'd lived in Tyre, Sidon, or Sodom. 
because they would have repented. But if you do, if you do rip up the foundation of your life and place it anew on Jesus, you have no idea what God has in store for you. There's a strange place in John chapter 4, verse 12, where Jesus says this. Have you, have you ever puzzled over this one? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Have you ever thought about that? What on earth is Jesus talking about? Consider what we just looked at. Consider the astonishing feats that Jesus accomplished. And now Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and even greater works than these will he do? Because I'm going to the Father? What could Jesus possibly mean by that? Well, Jesus had previously told his disciples that he's going to be going away, but even though he's going away, that will be to their benefit. And you might think, well, how is that possible? How could it be to our benefit for Jesus to leave? Well, the only thing that is better than having Jesus right there beside you would be to have Jesus within you. And you see, that's what Jesus promises. He says that he's going to the Father so that when he goes to the Father, he will send his spirit. So the moment that you repent, you change the foundation of your life, God fills you with his spirit. The very spirit of Jesus dwells within you, which means what? The power of God. The very power of God is now active and operative in your life. And that is why we will do even greater works than what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. You see, Jesus has distributed his ministry powers. Every person who is a Christian is filled with his spirit and is given gifts. He's distributed his ministry powers among all of us. We don't have all of his gifts. We don't have all of his powers. You have some, and you have some, and you have some, and I have some. None of us have them all, but together we do. And that is why he can do so much more than he could during his earthly life. You see, when Jesus was walking this planet, his ministry power was located in one place at one time. But now it is distributed among millions of people. And we need more in New York City. Because you see, Jesus had the power to challenge people and to comfort people, to warn people and to win people. But now that power is operative in and through us, which means that we have a job to do. And if we would only let him, well, then he will do greater works in and through us than he did even during his own lifetime. But if you know your own heart, you know that the greatest miracle, the greatest wonder, is that any one of us could ever repent. Our own salvation should be a wonder to us. It should cause us to stop and stare in astonishment. How could Jesus ever open up my blind eyes? How could he ever soften my hard heart? But you see, that was the purpose of the miracles. They were enacted parables. They pointed beyond themselves. It's not just that he's bringing physical healing and wholeness. No, what Jesus is trying to do is open up our eyes so that we can see God for who he really is, to raise us from the death of sin, to satisfy our existential hunger and thirst, which only God can satiate and quench. But you see, if you know that your own salvation is a miracle, then you can have hope for anyone. If, if God can save you, he can save anyone. And that's what fills us with hope. Giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, 
That's nothing. A New Yorker repenting, turning to Jesus, making Jesus the foundation of their life, that would take a miracle. But Jesus can do it because he does impossible things. He is the ultimate wonder worker. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that as hard as it may be for us to accept some of the astonishing feats which you performed during your earthly existence, we pray that you would help us to understand their meaning, that they are powers, they are signs, that they are wonders. But the purpose of these wonders is not to cause us to stop and stare in astonishment, but to drop down in our knees in faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to avoid the dangers that the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum faced. Don't let us stay on the fence. Don't let us straddle the fence any longer. But instead, help us to repent. Help us to change. And as we do, Father, we pray that you would do even greater works in and through us than you did during your own earthly ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.